Amen. Thank you, Dan, Jody, Parker, and Catherine for beautiful worship this morning. And in that spirit, we'll continue to worship by opening God's Word together. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open with me to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Well, sitting eight miles north of Salisbury, England, is one of the world's most famous and recognizable sites. I'd tell you what it is, but I don't really know. In fact, it doesn't seem that anybody really knows what it is. In the Middle Ages, rumor had it that Merlin the wizard built it himself, and they bought that, which is about as crazy as those people today who think that it's a UFO landing site. In the 17th and 18th century, archaeologists decided it must have been a, a Druid temple of Celtic religion, but that was soon ruled out. So in 1963, astronomer Gerald Hawkins decided it was some kind of ancient computer of sorts made to predict lunar and solar eclipses. It certainly seems to line up with the winter and summer solstice. But the theories continued because that one wasn't satisfactory. And by 1973, one archaeologist claimed it was the center of a confederation of Bronze Age chiefdoms. Tribes came together here. But that was soon not enough either. In 1998, another archaeologist claimed it was a, a burial ground and a monument for the ancestral dead, which certainly seems to have been one of its purposes as a burial ground. In 2008, archaeologists argued that it was an ancient place of healing because of the kind of stones that are there. In 2012, a book was published arguing that it was a monument to peace and unity. It's remarkable, really. We don't even know when we first started calling it Stonehenge. Stones stacked on one another, some 13 feet tall and 7 feet wide, weighing 25 tons, standing vertically side by side with others placed on top of them. I won't even get started on the theories of how all this got there. Some of the smaller stones came from 150 miles away before anybody had even seen a wheel. More than 800,000 tourists go to visit it every year, even though nobody really knows what it means. They don't even let you climb on it. You can't even spray paint it. <laughs> and maybe that's part of the draw. People want to join with centuries of onlookers and scientists and historians who have gawked at the miracle and asked the same question, what happened here? It's the kind of question that Joshua chapter 4 imagines will be asked of a different pile of rocks. The book dives into God's story, Joshua, at a most interesting place. It's hard to, to understand, to fully comprehend all that's happening in Joshua chapter 4 unless you remember the history leading up to this point. That Joshua has just been appointed the new leader of Israel, a new Moses. And like Moses before them, he's, he's demanding obedience to the covenant, obedience to the Torah, to the laws of God. Yet to understand Joshua 4, you have to remember that the Israelites 
have been going through something awful for an entire generation, sitting at the verge of the wilderness, some of them dying before they ever got to see it, Moses himself not realizing the dream that he'd led them out of Egypt for. They're like a team coming fresh off an 0-12 season. A new coach comes into town talking real big, but there's some skeptical fans out there. They've seen enough losing seasons to know that this one may not go their way either. But it's time. It's time in Joshua 4 for Joshua to lead them into the promised land, the place that God had promised to their father Abraham so long before. So it sits waiting for them just across the Jordan. Joshua sends spies in chapter 2, which goes better than it did for Moses back in the book of Numbers. They don't ruin it. In fact, they come back reporting that the Lord has surely given all the land into our hands. So just as the Lord had parted the Red Sea and led the Israelites out on dry ground, he was going to do this for this generation. A new Red Sea here at the Jordan River, drying up, making a way for them to cross. And so they set out just as God instructed. You heard it read already. The priests take the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. They march down to a flood stage river. Chapter 3 tells us that by faith they, they dip their toes in the water. One of those great passages of faith. They, they put their feet in and the moment their feet are in the water, the Jordan River is cut off from above and from below. And while the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God, sits there on dry ground in the hands of priests in the river, an entire nation crosses over, leaving behind decades of meandering through the barren Wilderness just trying to survive, clinging to faith and hope. What had seemed impossible, maybe even improbable, for an entire generation has at last been accomplished. It must have felt surreal to be the fulfillment of that ancient promise that God would make them a place and call them to be a people. And the joy had to be magnified only by the, the recent events. I imagine once they get across that river, there were shouts for joy and songs being written and praise being had. One thing is for sure, if God intervenes like this, you never stop talking about it. If your feet had passed across the dry ground of the Jordan River with your entire family and entire nation, just like you had waited for centuries, could you ever forget that? When God intends that they wouldn't, and he aims to make sure of it. So God tells Joshua in our passage today to choose 12 men, one from each tribe, and have them take these stones from the middle of the Jordan River, exposed only because God's power made it so, and to pick them up on their shoulders and to carry them to the place where they would camp that night, Gilgal, on the side of Jordan, not far from Jericho. And Joshua 4, 6 and 7 says, This may be a sign among you. And when your children come and ask in time, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And when it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. They were to set up a picture, a reminder of what God 
had done for them. Contemporary artist Andy Goldsworthy has explored aspects of stones in his work of art. He has an installation called the Garden of Stones at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Manhattan, New York. In that installation are are large boulders scattered throughout the outside courtyard. Each one of them has a, a hole drilled into the boulder. Together, families came, Holocaust survivors. And one by one, they planted trees in the holes drilled in these boulders in 2003. Every viewer that comes by to see the installation visualizes, sees, is is shown a representation of their story, a story of improbable survival, that trees can grow even out of rocks. In Joshua chapter 4, the people are given instructions what kind of memorial they're going to construct, what kind of story it ought to tell, what generations ought to hear about. And having just experienced the undeserved grace and provision of God himself, they were to make sure that there would never come a day where what they had experienced was forgotten. They must tell the story. And like those Israelites, as we read this passage, we learn this morning that we must tell the story. We're a people who have experienced the miracle of God's salvation. You may have never seen the waters rolled back, but let me tell you, you've crossed over on dry ground if you've come to faith in Jesus. God has delivered us from the chaos of the wilderness and into his divine rest, both in this life and in the inheritance he promises us to come. By no power of our own, We have been given claim on an inheritance that we don't even deserve. We've been brought out of slavery and into freedom, from darkness to light, from brokenness to wholeness, from death to life. And if that's your story, how could you ever forget to share? You see, we're called, as were they, to tell the story of salvation from one generation to the next, to make sure there never comes a day where someone forgets what this is all about and who is at the center. From one generation to the next, from east to west until the end of time, we're to set up markers, reminders, stones, images, pictures, photographs, buildings, people, classes, whatever it takes that the story of salvation would be known. The Hebrew Bible provides a number of accounts where stone structures like this are made in memory of significant events. In Genesis chapter 18, when God shows up at Bethel, they build a pile of rocks. When Jacob makes a covenant with Laban in Genesis 31, they make a stack of rocks. When Moses receives the law at that very place in Exodus 24, they put some stones down to make sure it's marked. That moment is remembered When the Israelites experienced victory over the Philistines in 1 Samuel 24, they set down stones to remind themselves so that the story of God would be told forever. During the Passover, the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 13, 
When your sons ask you, what does this mean? You say to them, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And before Moses died, he told the Israelites themselves and future generations, when your sons ask you, what is the meaning of the stipulations and commandments and laws that have been given to us? You tell them, Pharaoh's foot could not hold us down. We were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. You see, one generation of Israelites was responsible to remember the events of their life and to inform the next generation of all the miracles that God has done for his people. And so Joshua steps into this tradition and perpetuates it, keeps it going as we are called to do also. And the text reminds us that Christians can't ever forget the mighty works of the Lord and the miracles God has performed on their behalf. They're responsible. We are responsible to teach from one generation to the next until the end of time. The miracle of the crossing wasn't just to be celebrated by those who experienced it, those who watched the Jordan waters roll up, but by everybody who came behind them. These stones were to be signs that future generations would literally trip over on their way down to the Jordan. <coughs> and I wonder, does anybody stumble over the story of God when they get to know you? If somebody walks into your life, hears about what's going on, is there anything that points them to God? Joshua 4 is about setting up a marker that will tell anyone and everyone. Kids are literally tripping over it. What are people tripping on when they learn about you? What's your identifying mark? What's the overwhelming characteristic of your life? What is the passion and purpose that consumes the priorities you set for yourself? Could it be that the mighty works of God and what he has done for you gets a new place today? See, the truth we're enlisted to tell isn't just whatever entertains us or what catches the eye or what's pleasing to the ear of those listening. We are to tell the story, yes, but not just any story. We are to tell the story of God. We're to tell the story of God. You see, anytime there are people involved, you better believe we can find a way to make it about ourselves. I can already see it. The instructions are laid out. It seemed pretty simple, didn't it? How could this go wrong? Choose one person from each tribe to pick up a stone and carry them over there. And tribe number one steps up and says, well, who's going to carry our stone? Guy in the corner says, I'll get it. The rest of the guys look over like, no, no, uh, Thor, Thor, you come over here. Go find the biggest stone to represent our tribe. Pull it up out of the Jordan. Make sure it's the one that goes on top. How quickly it can become about us. Ours is bigger. Ours got there first. Ours came the furthest. Yeah, but did you see the way he carried it? The miracle happens, and then we step in and find some way to mess up what was so obvious that none of this, none of this, is possible apart from God. 
know, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned nine times in chapter three. The whole story is orchestrated, not to make Moses look great, not to make Joshua look great, even though he would be revered because of this. The whole story is organized and situated around one thing, God himself and the power of his presence in the midst of his people. What's your life about? What's it organized around? Who's the driving actor, the driving force in that story? See, the point is this, that every moment of your life is surrounded in God's provision. From the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, for every time you had your courage to put your feet in all the way and to see the water dry up for yourselves, For every time your life was sustained by God's almighty and ever-present hand, there is a marker. You don't need rocks. You don't need stones. You've got pictures in your house, people in your lives, things every day that you pass by that remind you that for every moment of your life, there is a story about a God who provides and restores and sustains and delivers and redeems. And I wonder today, is there evidence of that in your home? in your life, in your words, in your relationships? Would someone following behind you even know what God has done here? Or would they just know the old you? Some kind of self-made you that has a lot of you in the middle of the story. Some kind of imaginary life apart from God. You see, we're conditioned, I think, to make ourselves the center of the story, but every stone and marker reminds us of a future that we didn't make for ourselves. Even the worst memories we have, the hardest things we've endured, the worst suffering we could imagine reveals a God who overcomes and redeems and sustains us through it all. So we can say right here is where I crossed an uncrossable river, an uncrossable line by no power of my own. This was a place where we learned something new about God, or or there was a day that I was grateful to God for. This was a time when I struggled, but God was with me even still. You ever stop and think, surely there was a better way? An enslaved people managed to wiggle their way out of Pharaoh's slavery. God's got them crossing seas and wandering in the wilderness, waiting on manna from heaven, carrying around stones. I mean, why not just airlift these people from A to B? He's able. Why not smooth the road a little bit? Why spend so long waiting on the other side of the Jordan? If not because they were building a testimony of faith. They were being taught who is in control and who to trust so that when they got there and someone asked, what happened here? The answer would be so undeniably clear. This is only, I am only, we are only by the grace of God who we are. Have you ever considered that something in your life might be the same? That the best and yes, even the worst experiences of your life can bear witness to a God who can deliver? Or is it possible that someone could ask of your life what happened here 
only to learn nothing, nothing about God. Is it possible that someone could ask about your life, what happened here, only to learn nothing about God? Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And this little camp on the other side of the Jordan, Gilgal, they called it. It will be an important place for Israel for years to come. On this ground, Samuel will lead Israel in confirming Saul's appointment as king. Twice it's named as a place of sacrifice for Saul. Hosea and Amos mention it as a place of sacrifice and pilgrimage. Micah 6 recalls it when telling the acts of God that the people ought to remember. Apparently, they did an all right job of telling the story. The story of the Jordan River permeates the whole rest of the Bible. It is even today an image of salvation to cross over the river and enter into the promised land. The last moment when the prophet Elijah spoke on earth is found in 2 Kings 2. And in that passage, where are Elijah and Elisha? But together at the Jordan. Maybe you remember Elijah's last moments. He strikes the ground and what does he do? Parts the waters of the Jordan and he and Elisha enter into it together. And before Elijah ascends up into heaven, Elisha asks, give me the spirit of prophecy that you have, the spirit of God that's upon you. And after Elijah is gone, Elisha crosses back over the Jordan River, receives the spirit of Elijah and becomes God's man for his people from that day having passed through those same waters. And make no mistake about it, these are exactly the events that the writer of Mark's gospel imagined when he begins writing a gospel account, not with a genealogy, not in Bethlehem at a nativity scene, but where? Introducing John the Baptist, a man who looks a whole lot like Elijah, meeting Jesus, where? At the banks of the Jordan River. And what would Jesus, the new Yeshua, do except cross through the waters of the Jordan himself and receive the very Spirit of God. It's as though Jesus, too, is repeating this great episode in the story of his namesake, Joshua, pointing all who would listen to the God who rescues. It turns out they did a pretty good job of telling the story because it keeps coming back up again, even in the scriptures, even in our lives today. In 1867, William Francis Allen set out in the wake of the Civil War to catalog and record for the first time the beautiful spiritual songs that had spread throughout the slaves of the United States. In 1867, he put together a book called Slave Songs of the United States and what song is it that he placed at the very front of the book? He said, quote, some songs were local, only known on one plantation or had different lyrics from one city to the next, but some extended from South Carolina to Florida. And this is the best known and the noblest of songs, Roll, Jordan, Roll. 
In fact, the night of her escape from the poplar neck plantation, Harriet Tubman herself, that great champion of the Underground Railroad, bid farewell to her friends and family one morning, not by announcing that she was escaping, as she would certainly be caught, but by singing that spiritual song, I'll meet you in the morning. I'll meet you in the morning. I'm bound for the promised land. On the other side of Jordan, bound for the promised land. That story of the Jordan River code, not just for her escape across the Ohio River and into free states, but code for a God who holds out hope to weary souls and promises them a future that is better than the suffering they experience right now. Turns out they were pretty good at telling that story about the Jordan. You think they could have guessed that centuries later, their river would be the image of salvation sung by slaves of the South heading for deliverance because they set up some stones and they never forgot what God has done. In Joshua 4, 19, it says the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month to make sure you don't forget it was flood season. And they took those 12 stones and they set them up at Gilgal. And when your children ask their parents in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You shall let your children know Israel crossed over the Jordan here on dry ground. But why? So they could have a safer place to live. So their kids could be raised in a more stable community. So they could know a future that was a little more secure for themselves. No, for the Lord your God dried up the waters. The Lord your God did that to the Red Sea. He dried it up for us to cross over. Verse 24, so that... All the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see, they were to be a people who were called out from among the others so that the world will know the true God. We must tell the story of God. And we must tell the story of God together. Throughout history, God has looked for a group of people who would give themselves wholeheartedly to this idea of following him. He's longed for a people who would push aside other priorities and preferences, all for the sake of knowing and loving him, distinguished from the rest of the world. First Peter puts it this way, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You are living stones. And the monument being made by you, by us together, is a model for the world of what God's kingdom might look like. When some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, could you quiet down your disciples? He looked back at them. I tell you, if these become silence, the very stones will cry out. You see, if you won't say it, God can make the stones say it for you. So join them. Make there be one less stone necessary. Pull out the markers, get out the pictures, put it everywhere you can to your children, to your neighbors. I am who I am by the grace of God. So let your story not be that 
God must seek out other stones, but that we would join with all of creation in proclaiming the same story they sing, that the hand of the Lord is mighty and we will serve him forever. Stonehenge is an impressive landmark, but for lack of evidence, we, we don't really know what to make of it. It was created by people with no written history. We're left to guess on our own, to come up with theories. It has no real meaning, and so people keep just digging more and more into it, trying to find meaning within. But our meaning doesn't come from within. It is given to us from above, from God himself. And for all its mystery and marvel, no one looking at it, even studying Stonehenge, has ever been able to figure out who the maker is. What about you? Look around. These are living stones. What do these stones mean to you? If someone was to ask of your life, what happened here? What story, what message, what God would they come to know? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have sustained us and redeemed us and upheld us by your hand. Father, in humility we say that everything we have is but for the grace of God. Help that to be our story and our song, the song of your salvation forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.